we are sweltering through yet another stinking hot day here in Canberra and on 2XX, the Fuzzy Logic Science Show. Now, it's been an endless run of really, really hot weather and I cannot believe how we are all sweltering away. And up in Chicago yesterday, apparently, or a few days ago, minus 39 degrees Celsius. That is really serious. So, climate change, is it real? What's actually happening and why why do we think about climate change the way we do? Well, I'm delighted to welcome into the studio Nick Badulovic. And uh, Nick, you are from the Centre for the Public Awareness of Science at the ANU. And your research, which I think you've only just started, is in climate change communication. Exactly, exactly. So, yes, from CPAS, because, you know, science or Centre for the Public Awareness of Science is quite a long phrase. So, you know, we can say CPAS. But, um, yes, fresh PhD student looking in climate change communication. Well, I would love to hear great detail about what you're researching. But first of all, there's a spectrum of attitudes towards climate change. And I think we in the room probably have a similar one. Can you... Give me a really simple, say, left to right, high to low, top to bottom description of where people sit on that spectrum. Definitely. So, And you're right, there is a spectrum. So, of course, you can ask a question to somebody and say, do you believe in climate change? And you could receive a yes or no. But there's also a lot of in-between. So there are studies which people have done a lot in the US, but also in Australia, where they do what's called a segmentation analysis. They take a nationally representative sample of people from a country and they break those people up into different categories. But they get broken up based on how they respond to certain questions. So the questions could be related to beliefs in climate change or their attitudes towards climate change or how much they intend on acting on a personal level or collectively. And what we find is that when you ask those questions and do the statistics, there are a few very distinct clusters of people that come out of this. And so you get these what are called interpretive communities. So you have right at one end of the spectrum what uh, you would call the alarmed people. This is research that initially came out of the Yale program on climate change communication. Alarmed? Yeah. Uh, could we also say panicked? Panicked, yes. Maybe panicked. <laughs> maybe, maybe that's a bit of a loaded term, but okay, yeah. alarmed. So these alarmed. people who are well committed and acting yeah so their attitudes they believe in an anthropogenic effect of climate change they want to take action and their attitudes are generally along the lines of being sort of pro-environmental um so that is sort of the first like that one end of the spectrum and then you move into the next category called the concerned so they're a little bit like that as well but some of these attitudes start to change you have than um, cautious and disengaged and doubtful sort of in the middle. So you have three sort of on the left in the sort of believing climate change, wanting to take action, and three on the other side. Mm -hmm. When you get to the other end of the spectrum, you encounter the dismissive, people that don't believe in climate change. And it doesn't just include climate sceptics. It's people that may not know anything about climate change or they're really not interested. Um, And so what we end up getting are these sort of six. And in Australia, it's been replicated and we have five. Five of these categories of people based on their beliefs in climate change and their attitudes. Okay, so a person who's, uh, say, in the cautious spectrum, they think it's real, but they're not motivated enough or maybe it's just not a priority in their life, do you think, that that they are going to actually step up and do something? Yeah, definitely, exactly. And what we find as well is that 
there are lots of different value sets that people hold, different things that, that are important to people, um, which is why we know that throwing facts at people about climate change doesn't always get everybody interested and probably the majority don't become interested by that. And so in the middle, you have a lot of people who uh, may not have heard much about climate change or they might have heard about global warming, but is that the same as climate change? And so there's a lot of uh, possibility then to tailor your communication specifically to those different segments of the population to make it as effective as you can. So there isn't really... Well, what's the correlation and does it mean anything between whether a person is well-informed on whether they believe that climate change is real? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so there is, there is a bit of a relationship between how much you believe in climate change and your sort of knowledge of climate change, which might be, you know, the effect of uh, greenhouse gases or what CO2 does to the atmosphere. And we find that the people that are in the alarmed category, the people that believe climate change is happening, they have a fair bit of knowledge on climate change and they believe the most. As you start to go into the other side of the spectrum, you find that belief goes down and such, but the dismissive category also has a fair bit of knowledge as well. So it's not, it's not simply the case that the people in the dismissive category don't have knowledge about climate change, because they do. So what that is showing us is that by employing um, a method to communicate science by just throwing facts at people doesn't work. That's what they call the information deficit exactly. model. Exactly, that's right, yeah. yeah, the deficit model. So how do we connect? Actually, before you go into that, I just want to relate a, a little thing that's happened recently with Fuzzy Logic in the last week. Now, we have a Twitter account, which is mm -hmm. at Fuzzy Logic Sci, and uh, I put up a post uh, a few days ago, and I said... Uh, in response to somebody else, how many records do we need to break before you change your mind? Better decide soon because time is running out. Now, that puts me in the alarmed category, right? Yes, I now, would say so. Yeah. Now, I was responding to a person who was in, the, I guess, the dismissive category. And what it did was trigger, um, spam is probably not quite the right word, but a whole flurry of messages from a group of people who I think you might categorise as the alt-right. Mm -hmm. oh, before I go on, have you heard the term anti-fa? Anti-fa? Yeah. I don't think so. Anti-fascist, apparently. Okay. Uh, okay, well, anyway, that was one of the terms that got uh, flashed around. And uh, so I'll read some of the responses that uh, popped up then. It says, uh, it's all a hash climate scam, uh, aiming to take wealth from those who have it to give to despots who run corrupt governments and impoverished nations. Hmm. Any, any thoughts about that, Nick? <laughs> so they, they, they've, what are they doing in that statement? They're saying take wealth. Yeah, I, I, I'm not even sure I understand it. Well, they're talking about money, aren't they? They're, hmm. they're, they're saying that climate change is bad socialism maybe that's maybe that's yeah. so it's about redistributing wealth mm -hmm. but then they've brought in corrupt governments as on top mm -hmm. of that yep and despots yes well i suppose what we're seeing here is coming through in that comment are the things that is motivating that person right right so they what they care about is is coming through really strongly in that in that tweet because they're not just talking about things they don't care about. They're tweeting about things they do care about. That's why they feel compelled to tweet, so, as everybody does. So would you, would you suggest it's actually, even though it might be 
a weird place for people like you and I to visit to actually look at what these people are doing? Totally. I mean, the, the first rule of science communication, like the golden rule, is know your audience. So if you want to talk with people or communicate with people, the first thing you want to do is understand them. You want to listen to them. And just because um, we may look at a comment and label someone as, oh, they don't care about climate change, so I'm not going to bother with them, that could be quite counterproductive. So it's really important to understand what they believe and what their values are in the first place right. before communicating. It's yeah. listening before talking. And I'm, I'm guessing that there's also on that spectrum that there are a type of person, there are some who might be persuaded, but there's others who basically will never change their opinion no matter what. Is that, is that, uh, does research show that the people become fixed in their opinions? Yeah, so there's definitely um, some sort of uh, psychological models where you can present information to people and whether it aligns with their prior beliefs or their values, you can either result in sometimes people changing their mind, but a lot of the time, because it conflicts with the information that they already understand, it can cause them to become uh, more like cemented in their own views. Right, yes. Um, As you end up just making them hardcore adversaries. Yeah. yeah, so you can have this sort of boomerang effect and you can have the result. You're trying to you know, depolarise a debate, but in fact it just continues to polarise it further. Well, let, let's, we'll drill into that in a moment, but I'd like to go through a few more of these tweets because they're, they're, they're really quite interesting and I, I'm... <laughs> Sorry, I'm struggling to think of the, the right word to use here. Anyway, this person says, climate always changes, has always gone through cycles. 1915 and the Darling River had no water in it as well. So that's another counter-argument, isn't it, to saying climate change? Is it? Yeah, it's so the first part of that is correct. Yes, climate has always been changing. It changes on tens of thousands of years time scales, right? So we go from glacial periods to interglacial periods. Yeah. And that does happen. It's documented. We can see that from ice cores, from tree rings. Paleoclimatologists are constantly using those things as well as corals to reconstruct past climate. So that's true. But the, where the difference is is that what we're experiencing now is an acceleration in the change of climate, an acceleration in emissions of CO2 particularly. So those sorts of unprecedented changes of what we're seeing now. The debate is not about whether climate is changing, because we know it is, but the debate is how strong the forcing from humans is. Right, right. So how would we... So that the person who tweeted that, how might we talk to that person, do you think? It's, I suppose it's hard to gauge... Um, you Oops, know, sorry to interrupt. Do we, do we have enough information about that person? Yeah, so maybe, maybe not. Um, I would think that um, it's definitely important to understand what they value first and what motivates them. Uh, I don't think get, we'd be able to get enough information just from a tweet, especially a, a tweet in response to something else. Um, but being able to have a conversation with that person and understand what they, what they value and what they believe and what they want to see happen, yeah. that could start, that could plant the seed for a productive discussion. Yeah, you'd have to have the uh, the stomach for this, though, wouldn't you? All right, so I'll just keep going because these are quite interesting to read. Uh, we're not breaking records, not how responsible media states, quote, not since, meaning last time this temperature was hit was 80 years ago, listen and learn, which I guess is the, basically a variation of the same of the previous comment. Mm. But there they're talking about media now, right? which is us implicitly, or me mm -hmm. perhaps, uh, 
Is that a distrust of sources that were previously authorities? Well, definitely um, we get a lot of our information from media, definitely, and especially scientific information as well because scientific journals are not accessible generally to most people. Yeah. You have to have some. You have to be at a university which has a subscription, and if you don't have that, then it costs a lot of money. So it's very difficult to get access to, to science unless it's open access. And this stuff is, can be hard to read. Even for someone like me, I read this and I go, I have to really work at it. Okay. Totally, totally. Yeah. And that, that's the, sort of the role of you know a science communicator, someone that can look at this science and really boil it down and say what's important to come out of this. And and so, yes, media plays a huge, a huge role okay. in people. Yeah. And this one says America's emissions are pretty low compared to many countries. Hmm. Our Antifa, so this the anti-fascists, are real extremists, birds of a feather, eh? Well, I don't know enough about Antifa to comment on that one. Uh, vote green if you want to destroy your country. Yeah, okay, so we have sort of political messages coming through, I suppose, as well. Yeah, and there's another one in the same vein which is, uh, I'll refer to Labour, I'll raise your hand if you believe the left loves hating POTUS, which is the President of the United States, right. uh, more than they love America. Hmm. Okay. A <laughs> uh, bit hard to know what to make of that one. Our climate is cyclic, never linear, which we've already yep. covered that one. Yep. Uh, it's all about money. Yep. The Paris Agreement. Okay, there's another yep. uh, assault on authority. Yeah, I suppose a lot of, you know, the Paris Agreement, um, and because the US recently pulled out of it as well, um, I mean, there's lots of opinions around the Paris Agreement, um, what people think, but then also it depends who you're talking to as to whether they think it's something good that can be improved and keep and keep working at versus people that just think that, you know... Well, I'm, I'm wondering also the Paris Agreement is about control, and it's about imposing regulations mm. and so on, and it's about changing behaviour of business and people in order to meet climate targets. Mm -hmm. So do you think people resent this notion that there's this big authority uh, force that they don't control outside them telling them what to do? Perhaps. Um, I, I, I don't think I know enough about it to know the answer to that. Um, but potentially, potentially, and I, but I think, you know, the, the, the sort of goal here is to try and get countries on board together and, and governments working together at the same problem, getting them on board to be able to make the right decisions that we can to, to be able to mitigate climate change. And they, were, they used to talk about the new world order and so on, the Jewish bankers, etc., etc., the conspiracy-type theories. I guess it, tra it taps into that a bit as well. And, yeah, because it's such a global issue, right, everybody's involved. Everybody is affected by climate change, which means that because of, because of the different things that people believe, um, there are always going to be so many varied opinions and varied responses to, to things such as the Paris Agreement or things just in general talking about climate change. Yeah, so everybody's affected, but everybody also in some degree has to be responsible for solving this. Yeah, I, I, f I feel like um, what, what, what is important is definitely um, collective action, which is, you know, governments working together, the national, state, regional level, but also, yeah, personal action as well every individual can make a can make a difference you can you can start to do things which start to reduce your your carbon footprint uh, and it doesn't mean that you have to 
completely change your behaviors altogether. It's all about making small incremental changes, yeah. things that you're able to adapt with. And but people, people don't like being told what to do. Totally, totally. Yeah. And that's the thing, um, being able to have discussions where these things can be discussed openly and um, sort of behaviors which we can start to implement can be discussed as well. That can, that can help. Well, I'll, I'll leave the... Um Actually, a couple last comments. So another one says with the political side, Greens slash Labor aren't political options, they're suicide. Okay, and then this one gets personal, and I think this brings in a, another theme, and it says, how s stupid are people to believe money will stop the climate from changing? Seriously, idiots. So there we're getting a bit of anger, I think. Yes. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> all right, so now your PhD... Actually, let's, uh, let's take a song break. We've got a track. Now, you've chosen, if I've got the right number here, uh, let's see how we go, uh, play a bit of track. And when we come back, let's talk about your PhD research and about how you got into doing that here on Fuzzy Logic. We're talking climate. How do we talk about climate to people who mightn't even want to talk about climate with our PhD researcher, Nick Better? Village. <laughs> I'm going to get this right by the end of the yeah, show. Yeah, that's, that's fine. <laughs> Good idea here on Fuzzy Logic. Two double X. My eyes and tell I'm not lying. That's a good phrase here. Just skimming through an article, and I might go a little divergence into that first. Sure. Uh, before we talk about Dixon, this was in the in the newspaper, and it said Native American genocide linked to Ice Age. And it talks about the link between uh, people and climate. And the Little Ice Age of the 16th and 17th century were triggered by the genocide of indigenous people in the Americas by European settlers, this research shows. And scientists have long wondered what caused the, dry, uh, the drop in temperature so severe that it caused the River Thames to freeze over. New analysis by the University of London argues that m so many people were slaughtered or died of disease that the amount of agriculture was dramatically reduced, which in turn sucked carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. There you go, interesting. Mm. Unintended consequences, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Uh, and now it was a reverse greenhouse, I guess, uh, effect. So that's kind of... Uh, the inverse of what is happening in the Amazon basin now with the deforestation of the of the of that area which they used to call that the lungs of the planet mm -hmm. yeah I, I haven't i hadn't come across that i can't speak with any uh authority or knowledge on that but definitely like when it comes to the climate system right and uh it comes to if you're talking about emitting um greenhouse gases versus sucking them back down the earth totally, I mean, does that naturally. That's the whole reason we get climate um, interglacials and glacial periods based on how much ice. Ice holds a lot of gas, and so as you melt all that ice, you start to release gas oh, as really? well. So the ice that's now melting in the Arctic, for example, uh, that'll have a lot of gas in it? Yeah, so it, it, can, it can release gas. Um, you can also um, have, like, methane as well coming out of permafrost, um, but then the opposite can happen as well where you can have uh, like limestones for example forming and the calcium carbonate and they'll take they'll take um, carbon 
out of the that's atmosphere really as we think. That's really slow, though, isn't it? It is really slow yeah, on geological timescales. Uh, oh, no, we should we should tell our listener that you actually have a geology background, Nick. <laughs> yes. Uh, just just tell me briefly what that is. Uh, so I did my undergrad in geology, um, and my honours project was in metamorphic petrology and geochemistry. So we looked at ultra-high-pressure metamorphic rocks, which are rocks that have been subducted down to like 100 kilometres depth and then brought back to the surface. Uh, well, we, we might go into more detail about that, but that's just sort of little aside. So you do have some of this background. It's interesting when you look at some of the so-called climate deniers, and there was one whose name I can't recall. He was a famous anti-climate scientist, but he was actually a geology professor. Uh, that's one who, who since died, and there's another one in Melbourne, Ian Plymer, who wrote his book, uh, How Not to Teach Your Kids About Climate, or something like that. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> How do we explain? I don't, well, we can't talk about them personally, obviously, because we mm. we don't know them. But mm -hmm. yep. do, do you want to hypothesise where someone who's a professor of geology could have this? What's the term we use when there's these two completely different uh, systems of logic in a head? Yes, yeah, almost like a sort of cognitive dissonance. Um, I, I can't, yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't know either why that is, um, but definitely, li like I sort of said earlier, that people have different, different values. They have different things that they care about. Um, and that just means that not everybody is sort of on the same page or on the same level when it comes to talking about climate change. And, and, um, yeah, because ha having the geology background as well myself, Climatology, being the study of climate, is sort of part of the earth science realm. Um, but that in itself is a very complicated science. It's very heavily based in mathematics and models as well, and also your um, paleoclimatology. So I, I did a couple of courses in, in that, and, and, and it was really fun to do, uh, but I by no means became an expert, and I think it's... Um, in order to become an expert, you've got to be doing a lot of a lot of stuff, but obviously a PhD in it to to be able to. But it's, start it's, to it's very weird, isn't it? That you can have someone who is that level of education. I guess that kind of proves the, the what you were saying earlier about the uh, the effect of what you know versus what you believe, and and how somebody can be of that level of skill and yet still not think that climate change is real. And there's the weird psychology. I wonder whether, and again, I don't want to hypothesise about any living person, but uh, there's the the lone hero, the maverick who told everybody they sorted them out. There's something like that going on, perhaps. Yeah, I mean, like, humans are so diverse, right? There are so <laughs> many different... People have so many different opinions. People have so many different uh, ways they see the world, their, their, their worldview. Um, and it's just it just means that um, yeah like specifically when it comes to climate change we, that, that, that's just more evidence to show that talking about the facts on the whole is really just not going to work yeah. uh, and it doesn't I mean we've tried it for a long time and we know it doesn't it's this old model of science communication which incorporates the deficit model we're trying to move away from that and move into a more sort of discourse between science and scientists and, and also discourse means listening and yeah, understanding two-way yeah. communication you know you know uh, nick it reminds me of in my university days when otherwise unglorious degree <laughs> which i refuse to talk about <laughs> but 
there, there was a thing in management called scientific management, and a bloke named Frederick Taylor came up with this term for scientific management, and it was all about the mechanics of doing work. And his research was in the field of, uh, I think it was mining or uh, steel production or something like that. And he and people of his era, his cohort, talked about the size of the bowl on the end of the shovel okay. and, and the methods for doing the most efficient shoveling of a pile of coal. Yes, okay. coal. Yes. Yeah, seriously, from one place to another. And it was all a physical, mechanical system. Okay. And so how do you get the greatest productivity? Well, of course, you need to do... There was this thing called a Gilbreth and he did uh, time and motion studies. And there's a, a, a measurement he called the third league, which was Gilbreth back to front. Okay. Right? right. And he measured how many units of work it required to scoop the shovel up, uh, swing it over your shoulder, turn around, and, and he tried to break it down in very precise detail. There was something fundamentally wrong with this model, right? Okay. <laughs> well, who's holding the shovel? Uh, yes. Who's holding the shovel? It's a human. Yes, a human, exactly. And you probably know also the so the famous Hawthorne studies. Have you come across the Hawthorne studies? Same kind of thing. Uh, General Electric, and they wanted to study the effects of lighting and desk arrangements and all sorts okay. of air conditioning, all sorts of variables on the workers in the in the in the plant there. Yep. And so they put these people in a room and they started fiddling with all these variables, right? So they changed one thing, the productivity went up. Mm-hmm. They changed something else, the productivity went up. They changed another thing, the productivity, they changed it back again, the productivity went up. Yep. Because these people were special. Yes. And they, well, well we're the mob that are in this room, you know, and we, we're special. <laughs> and they started to bond as a group. Yes. Okay. Yeah. The sort of social dynamic between people as well. Yes. 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 So then you're part of a cohort. Now, does that tap into your your segmentation, as you call it, the categorization of attitudes of belief? Yeah. Well, I mean, definitely um, when it comes to climate change in general, I mean, anything really, of course. There are groups of people, and you associate with a sort of in-group of people that you believe, and then there are out-groups as well. So generally, what we do as humans is yeah, we find the people that align with what we believe as well, and we sort of get together, and, and, and that sort of group dynamic helps us to reinforce our values as well. So that happens on each end of the spectrum. So you have people um, who get together with um, people who also believe climate change is happening. They might go to talks. They might have workshops, anything. And then on the other end of the spectrum as well, you have people who don't believe it and they want to talk with people who have that similar view also. So how do we counter this? So you could say that you and I are on the alarm end of the spectrum, that we are science advocates and so on, we believe in the power of evidence, etc., etc. Could an anti-person or people at the other side of the spectrum just point to us and say that you guys are just in the bubble you're having your self-fulfilling conversation and all you're doing is reinforcing what each other think. Totally, totally, totally someone could say that. Um, And I suppose um, this is where the debate gets so complicated is because, yeah, we do have, I suppose you were highlighting that before, the the human effect, and we are just like we're all individuals 
And so that makes it extremely complicated to talk about climate change. Um, but, yeah, I, I suppose when it comes to science, there's obviously there's this big difference between, like, climate change itself is, is, is a problem, problem in science, definitely. But when it comes to talking about it, we can't necessarily talk the science to people because, again, this is highlighting that old science communication model, which is giving facts to people and the deficit model, which we know doesn't work. So we have to come up with ways to talk about science, but talk about science and um, in a way that aligns with people's values connects, and makes them... It connects with people, yeah. Totally, totally. So w what's the rough breakdown of the numbers of people in each of those segments... So well, in the States where this study was originally done, like I said, by the Yale Program on Climate Change Communication, they roughly have about 30% and 30% um, in the sort of first two categories, the alarmed and concerned. They have less in, in the middle. So 60% so so of the population believe that climate change is real and human-caused, right? Yeah. Roughly? Yep. Yeah, and, okay. um, and then down towards the other end of the spectrum... Um, almost 10% each for the dismissive and the doubtful categories at the other end of the spectrum. And um, we have... So, but then those numbers can also be... Um, you can look at those in contrast to sort of um, opinions or uh, perception studies as well, which does a lot. The same, the same uh, research department at Yale does that as well. They look at, in the States anyway, specifically attitudes towards climate change and track that over time and we've done that in Australia as well researchers from CSIRO also look at attitudes of climate change and see how that tracks over time oh, okay. and how that changes do, do we know what that progression is at the moment so between like 2011 and 2014 it stayed relatively constant um, but there are always think tanks doing research as well and, and public opinion polls to try and understand um, how our opinions might be changing. And there's an interesting effect which, um, where you ask someone if they believe in climate change, but then you ask them as well, what do you think Australia believes? And generally, we estimate it pretty incorrectly. We think that a lot of people in Australia don't believe climate change, but it's actually higher. So when you actually ask people the question whether they do believe that's higher than what our perception of what everybody else believes is. Okay. So. Now, I've, I've heard, tell me if, this is, if you know this is true or not, that there's a correlation between the current political power. So I think that when Tony Abbott was Prime Minister, that there was a dip in support for climate. Does, does that correlate with something you know? I've, I think I've seen figures. I, I don't know enough so to do. Yes, then. Uh, potentially, I've, I've seen figures on this. I think, um, but I don't recall the details. But I can definitely say, like in the states, for example, in the United States, um, research shows that political ideology definitely correlates with mm. beliefs in climate change uh, to the point that. Um, it's so polarised, just like politics is, that you can be pretty sure of what Republicans will think versus Democrats. Right. Um, do, you, do you think that in a, in a perverse kind of way that having Donald Trump as the president will motivate and galvanise people on the climate side and say, you know, we can't afford to let this go and... and is there a, I'm looking for a positive side for having someone like him in power. Yeah, I... I don't know, and I suppose um, I don't know enough about the, the political yeah. story and, it, and the effect that it can have. I suppose we just have to wait and see what, what we can time hope brings. This might happen. Yeah. 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 Well, there was Al Gore also made the 
the question of climate a political thing, didn't he? Because he yep. did his, which was really an excellent production, The uh, Inconvenient Truth. Mm-hmm. What, what do you know about that, about what was the effect of what he did? Um, um, the, effect, the effect on people or on the politicisation of climate change... Um, I, I'm, I'm not sure, actually. Um, did, did, but it, did it happen to? Do you think maybe it, it, it served to put a political flavour on top of what people thought? Potentially, potentially. Um, and I mean, I, I'm not sure whether you can um, put your finger on definitely the the uh, action that that did that. And I think over time, it has become more politicised. There wasn't a point in time where we thought, okay, it's science, and now, no, now it's definitely a political issue. It's it's evolved as it becomes. Um, a problem that the world faces, governments obviously need to start like to act to do things, and so that adds to its politicisation. I, I guess one of the reasons why I, I'm being I'm making this hard for you, Nick, is that uh, I'm, I'm asking you questions with a scientific premise, and you quite rightly are, are pushing back and saying, uh, "Look, I'm asking you whether there's a cause and effect," and you're saying you don't have access to the evidence. So I think you actually. <laughs> You're actually saying the right thing when you when you don't know, and and being able to say I don't know is really important. Totally, there's pressure on scientists and or anybody in authority to to always have an answer. Totally, and even if it's wrong. Yeah, yep. And I mean that's science, right? Science is you you do the work, you get the evidence, you stack it up, you try to make decisions, you try to make interpretation, and but that doesn't mean that in 10 years' time, someone comes along with some competing evidence and you start to reassess. But the thing with climate change is that we've been stacking up the evidence for a long time and it's just... Yeah. Not, yeah. Well, the, the official view of fuzzy logic is that climate change is real. It is caused by humans. It is serious that we must do something really soon, uh, if not 20 years ago. Our guest today is Nick Badulovich. Yes, from the Centre for the Public Awareness of Science. He's doing his PhD research into how to communicate science. And uh, let's just give ourselves a bit of a break here and a bit more track from the uh, Countdown album here on Fuzzy Logic. Uh, We come from the land down under. We come from the land of 2XX and the land of Fuzzy Logic Science Show. Now, Nick, your, your PhD research and you're, what, about a year into it now or a few months? Yeah, yeah, a few months, yep. Okay, so where are you at in uh, your thinking with this? At this stage, um, this is sort of the early months of a PhD, sort of understanding what you want to look at, sort of what questions you want to answer, and sort of taking... You know, a sculpture and starting to starting to mould it into something. So at this stage, so it's rough. Ju- you're just thinking about where you're going to take it. In other words, right? So you have a, yeah. it's fairly early days still, right? Yeah, and an important question like about what's its use and what use is it going to serve. Uh, that's another important question. I'm not just doing it because I'm interested in it, but what can I do that can help um, in people, general? Yeah, people like us, definitely. Yeah. yeah. Okay, I like that. I like that. And it's too early, obviously, to to say what that might be. But, uh, okay, so where do you think, what are your early thoughts now on what you're going to do? So broadly, uh, I want to be looking at effective ways to communicate climate change. So how do we talk about climate change and how should we talk about it? How can we um, have these productive discussions 
um, which helped to sort of depolarise the issue itself. How can we talk to governments as well? Different different parts of the population, from people who may have lots of scientific knowledge to who may not have so much or may not be interested. How do we talk to governments? How do we talk to NGOs? Do you have a feeling about what sort of method you're going to use? How are you going to conduct? Or is it too early to say yet? Um, so... In terms of uh, methods, I suppose I want to have a few different projects within my PhD from projects which are sort of more literature-based, understanding what the research says, but also interview-based, so understanding what people, like, what they want from research. Um, oh, so, so, so just sorry to interrupt. The, the, those Twitter um, people that we were reading out earlier, might you perhaps engage with people like that and ask them to tell you what how they think about this would, would you consider that yeah perhaps yeah i mean um at this stage there's definitely um lots of room for for me to think about what what projects i could do that would be most useful um and i mean like we were saying before science communication knowing your audience having that discussion is an important thing um and being able to talk to everybody and listen to everybody is is also really important mm. and if you can do research that involves um being informed by people as well it can then you can make sure that it's really useful. I wonder if, if you did talk to some of those uh, cl climate deniers, people on the hard end of the spectrum. It'd be a bit like being Lewis Thoreau, <laughs> and and uh, I don't know, maybe that's not a scientific method, but you have to kind of expose yourself to people who are so you think so differently to the way you do. I'm only I've only just focused on one there, but you you also mentioned. Uh, Parliamentarians, for mm -hmm. example. Uh, okay. So do you think surveys and interviews, stuff like that, right? Yeah, totally. Ways that we can understand what people think um, and what motivates them to think about that mm -hmm. uh, is an important way for us to be able to then tailor our communication efforts to them specifically and make them much more effective than a sort of blanket communication in which we hope gets everybody, which Yeah, won't. now I understand that the way that uh, scientists, because they're typically a conservative bunch in, in the, or by training, mm -hmm. that the language used by to communicate things, so this may happen, this could happen, this will happen, this definitely won't happen, etc. What's your understanding of that so far? Yeah, I definitely like having science training myself, yeah, we, we totally speak... Uh, we never speak with 100% conviction and say this is 100% the answer because you can't actually do that. What you can do, though, is c collect evidence and you can arrive at uh, a solution with a particular uncertainty. You can say within this range, we're 95% sure that this is the case. That's how science and statistics works. Um, but that can be misrepresented sometimes. So instead of having a small uncertainty on a number, that can be represented as having uncertainty on the whole idea. And that's also happened with climate change. So instead of having a, a plus or minus 0.2 degrees on, on a projection, then that uncertainty um, in the past has been translated to an uncertainty in the whole idea itself, which was a strategy used to try and stir up and make people uh, yeah, not be on board. Yeah, yeah. the so-called it's not proven in the uncertainty side of things. What about connecting to people? So I always remember hearing a news report that, in the Indian Ocean, there was the largest coral bleaching ever, and in fact, we're now hearing about it on the Great Barrier Reef, right? Yep. Now, that's abstract to me. 
Now, I've visited the Great Barrier Reef, but I don't go there. I haven't seen any bleaching. I don't know. So all I'm getting is somebody telling me about something that has happened and so on. Mm-hmm. It's not really personal. Yeah, so you, you bring up a really good point and something that's quite an active area in the climate communication research is understanding um, sort of asking people questions on what they care about more, local effects and climate change or distant effects. And if we present those those impacts at a local level versus a distant level, how does that change people's minds or how does that make them want to act? Um, and some some research shows that having local um, effects can, can help motivate, motivate people, but also we have a bit of conflicting evidence as well. And what that can also be put down to is that there's a strong geographical effect uh, between what messages you present to people and where they are in the world. Um, so being able to tailor your communication uh, based on that geography where we know cultures are different, we know value sets that are held by people are different, so you can't necessarily take a, a message that works for people in one country and say, well, therefore it will work for every country because we know those factors and those variables change. Uh, so being able to test for example, local versus distant, but also the way that you um, talk about climate change in either a really negative light or a positive light, saying that there's hope or saying that, you know, there's no hope, those effects can, well, they do have an effect on people. Uh, um, uh, now, it's probably the antithesis of the scientific mindset, but we could learn something from political campaigners, I suspect, so a friend of mine was in an electorate down the coast and he got flyers during an election and then he was talking to his mate who was in a few suburbs away and the message was different. So the local politician, the candidate, had profiled street by street his electorate right, and targeted the messages according to what those people cared about. Mm-hmm. So one was a trades area and Nigel was a professional, etc., etc., he he was interested in this. They were interested in something very different. But he noticed that. That was really yeah. interesting. So it might come down to maybe not street by street, but area by area yeah. and so on. And that's definitely where, um, yeah, trying to understand these broad patterns, these broad groups that exist, these different publics that exist right. in different countries and how we can tailor that communication to them. So like I said, a blanket statement of climate change is happening, these are the things that have happened already, these are the things that are going to happen. Of course, that's going to resonate with some people, um, but on the whole, it's not going to resonate with a lot of people. And furthermore, it can have the opposite effect. So it's really important to be able to understand what those groups of people value, what they think, what they care about, and be able to have that conversation and not feel like, not make them feel like you're just throwing facts at them or you're, you're trying to change their mind because we're just trying to have that conversation. Well, I guess the expert, and experts have been undervalued, undermined in recent years, haven't they? That, that expertise is being challenged increasingly, that oh, we can't have any truth because you, what, what would you know? I guess it's intimidating for a lot of people to have someone with PhD and years of scientific research saying, Oh, this means this. This means that. It's 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 disempowering. Mm-hmm. Is that right? Do you think that, that that you're hearing from an authority, which implicitly makes the the recipient less uh, impotent, perhaps? Well, so there's probably there's an interesting point there about the um, how trusted the messenger is. Yes. So 
definitely um, source credibility yeah. and definitely how trusted a messenger is is a really important um, point in communication as well. Um, that's something that we know that we need to incorporate when it comes to talking about scientific issues in general as well that that uh, source credibility and being able to pick the right person or the right the right way that we talk about it is an important, important well actually that, that's interesting because i asked robin williams from the abc yep. science show and i said what's your attitude to this and he said i don't hide what i think about this but i don't make a big deal out of it because i think someone from in his position is he's just communicating largely to the science enthusiast audience mm-hmm. but he makes a point of not being a not pushing a barrow i think and i guess that's because it would probably would change the way that people receive his message would be different interesting mm. yeah interesting yeah. well <laughs> now uh, you your your other study was in geology yes it just gives us a quick breakdown of that. So you talked about metamorphic rocks. So, yes. Uh, <laughs> without getting too 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 technical, actually, tell me, I'm going to be the sceptical. There is no such thing as a rock. <laughs> well, here I throw a rock. Here you go. Here's a rock. <laughs> well, no, no, I've been I've been flippant, uh, Nick. But uh, just, just just tell me briefly what your you, about your research. Yeah, so um, well, in my undergraduate anyway, it was yeah, metamorphic petrology. So petrology meaning the study of rocks. So we're looking at um, how pressure and temperature have affected rocks. Um, and for me, it was a particular area that we looked at um, and did lots of geochemical analysis as well, dating the rocks to understand, mm-hmm. not taking them out on dates, but uh, working <laughs> out how old they are um, and <laughs> using that to try and reconstruct a geological history. Um, before I embarked on the PhD that I'm in now, I, was, I did a part of PhD in isotope geochemistry. So after my undergraduate, went overseas and started to work in isotope geochemistry, which um, is, again, looking at particular isotopes in rocks and trying to understand, using those isotopes, you can look at particular signatures, and those signatures can tell you a lot about geological processes. So because the Earth is a dynamic, shifting system, rocks are constantly being recycled. Churning and churning and Exactly, yeah. Exactly, and isotopes can... um, provide a way that can be a little bit more robust in looking it's like at those processes. You mean? Yeah, essentially. Okay. In the same way that we use dating as well. So yeah. once a, the, the mineral solidifies and locks in at time zero those elements and then they start to decay, we understand pretty well those decay rates of certain elements and we can use that to calculate so when that rock solidified. crudely a sort of fingerprinting. Uh, yeah. What motivated you to get into the field of science communication and a particular climate? Yeah, so I guess for me, um, I really love science, and I still do, um, but I care a lot about talking about science and educating as well, if people are interested in science, um, and climate change is just, I mean, in my opinion anyway, and I think a lot of people agree as well, it's just the biggest challenge of, of the 21st century, really. It's a huge, huge issue, something that we need to tackle. And somehow you feel that you can make a difference. Well, yes, uh, in any small way that I can. Um, so I'm, I'm really not challenging you personally on this one, but I'm just tapping into the theme of powerfulness versus powerlessness, yep. that something in your makeup says, I can make a difference. Mm. Yeah, and I think, I mean, 
it's definitely not worth being disillusioned. Like in a PhD, I think everyone starts out with this whole grand. It's like I want to do a million things, but reality, you only have a, a matter of years to sort of boil that all down. But it's still important throughout that process to to believe that yes, understanding what effect your work can have. Um, and I'm not, you know, looking at being able to just you know change the world completely. But if we can start to um, look at sort of these communication factors and really start to understand it within an Australian well, context. Okay, so for our listener who is deeply concerned but maybe feeling disempowered or whatever, what would you say to people who are listening to us now about what can we do? Are, are we really just helpless paddle pop sticks floating down the drain? Yeah, so the answer to that is no, straight up. So not not helpless at all because in order to tackle climate change, we don't just need collective action, which is people working together. We need personal action as well and so feeling that you can make a difference is an important part of that so it's not just going out and doing things but having that belief that you can make a difference is also a really important part to motivate those actions and so it perhaps it could be something really small that you do definitely just maybe the way you vote yeah or it could be something big like yeah. doing a PhD <laughs> you could do a PhD but you know it could be something as simple as I'm going to drive my car just one less day a week and just take one day out where you don't. Maybe you ride a bike. Maybe you take public transport. Small incremental changes is, is is something that can be really useful. We don't want you to change your life completely. It's just making those small changes along the way that you can start to implement, and they start to become easier. Well, when you multiply that across the whole population, then it starts to make a real difference. Exactly. And I'm reminded uh, there's uh, Natalie Isaac set up this organisation called One Million Women, mm-hmm. and it's about connecting with all those very small personal micro decisions we make every day do i get a plastic bag Mm -hmm. what do i do with that rubbish that i've just generated do i try to buy something that has less packaging on it yeah do i buy local or imported etc etc definitely definitely and that's the thing i find i do that as well you go into the to the supermarket and you think you have the option to buy something that's wrapped in plastic or you have the option not to you have the option to grab a plastic bag and put it in there but do you really need to do that if you're going to wash your fruit and vegetables anyway is it really necessary and you you can take your own bag so you know things like this always thinking about it be just becoming aware of the the decisions that you can make and doing the best that you can to try and fit that into your life and start to make some changes. Well, there you go. And you can have that little warm glow that you're not really powerless, that you, there are things that we can all do, some big, some small. Yes. But uh, it's a worthwhile thing. And our grandchildren will think, oh, that's so preachy. Oh, my God, I feel <laughs> I'm going to have to just cut myself right there. <laughs> All right, well, it's been fascinating to talk to you this morning, uh, Nick. Uh, Just a quick heads up about uh, Fuzzy Logic, the uh, Ask Fuzzy column, which appears in the Fairfax. And I don't have time to talk about it, but it's really fun. It's got one of the best pictures I've ever seen on an Ask Fuzzy column. A couple of monkeys, uh, look at chimps, playing with Rubik's Cube. And it's on the theme of animal intelligence versus human intelligence. And I got a researcher to write. It's a really good story, really fun. And I think I might do one on traffic jams next. Oh, yes. Why do traffic jams occur? It's not quite as obvious as you might think. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Uh, and here's a heads up. It's got something to do or it's related to why there are spiral arms in the galaxy. Ooh. Whoa. Yep. Compression ways. Well, <laughs> I've got to cut myself off now because I'm rambling and Nick Badulovich. Perfect. It's, it's been great talking to you this morning and... Uh, 
I'll get you back on Fuzzy Logic and see how you're going with your climate research. Awesome. Thanks for having me on. Good on you, Nick. Catch you later.